Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Amelia Reimer. Amelia is a cultural support worker for the St. John's Native Friendship Centre. She's a proud Métis woman originally from the Pacific Northwest, but has made her home in St. John's for the past four years. For the past 23 years, she has worked with and served a wide variety of Aboriginal communities across North America. With the Native Friendship Centre, she has taken on the National Faceless Dolls Project, tracking and honouring missing and murdered Indigenous women in Newfoundland and Labrador, while increasing public awareness through media, speaking, and events. She volunteers her time with a variety of community organizations, including serving on the board of directors for the St. John's Status of Women Council. Amelia, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted that you're here to have a chat with me uh, this morning. Um, and it's, it's lovely. It's lovely to have you here. And it's been great having you part of, uh, part of St. John's. You know, it's nice to have you uh, decide to make your home here. Thank you. Because you've been here now four years? Almost five. Almost New Year's five. will be five years, yeah. And we met... Geez, we met even before that. We met at the Crow's Nest. We did, back in uh, 2009. Around storytelling. Mm-hmm. So it's fitting that we're here telling stories today. Yeah, yeah, so great. I'm glad you're here on the show. Um, as we start <coughs> off, um, I, I still think that though it's been here for a long time, I don't even know how long, a lot of people still don't know about the work of the, the Native Friendship Centre. Well, I know a couple of years ago we had our 30th anniversary. Right. So it's, yeah, it's been it's here been in St. John's for quite a while. Yeah. Um, about 32, 33 years now. And what is the main function of the, of the organization? The main function is to provide services to the Aboriginal community as well as the broader community, which means both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. Uh, we raise awareness about um, Aboriginal issues. We celebrate Aboriginal culture. And it's bridging that gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous a lot of times. But um, we have a wide variety of programs that that serve specifically Indigenous people. But then we're also open to, for most of our activities, are open to everyone, to the broader community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's the Indigenous community like in St. John's? It's, it's pretty broad, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah. So we have a lot of uh, Inuit and Innu people from Labrador. Yeah. And then there's a lot of Mi'kmaq people here from the island, both the West Coast, the Halibu, and then South Central Newfoundland and Con River. And, you know, every, it's like anywhere else. Everyone moves to the city at some point. And uh, so there's that representation. But then there's also representation of Aboriginal people from across Canada. Yeah. Like myself. I'm not from here. And there's, uh, and then there's a lot of other people from other parts of what we call Turtle Island, which is all of North America. Yeah. Yeah. And people, this is the center of the province in some ways, the, the yeah. political center. And, yeah. you know, so people wander through it at one point or another. Or, and I know that a lot of people come in on um, for medical reasons as well. Mm-hmm. Like I know you have a lot of people who are coming in from Labrador and whatnot for, for medical appointments. And, and yeah. that the, the, the center has a vital role to play to kind of helping them get around the community. And Absolutely. Part of it is... Um Depending on who someone's funder is, so if someone's from New Nazi of it, then their funding would be through through that agency. If they're um, through Inu Inu Nation, their funding might be through Inu Nation or Health Canada, and uh, a lot of the Halibu people come in through Health Canada as well. And we have a one of the many things we do at the Friendship Centers. We have a shelter. It's a medical hostel slash homeless shelter. And a lot of times when people are in from out of town for medical appointments, they'll stay with us. And then we also have a transportation program so that uh, their funders can contract with us to provide them rides to and from the airport and to and from their doctor's appointments as well. 
And you've kind of been a Jill of all trades with the, <laughs> with the Friendship Center, haven't yeah, you? you? I started that? off working in the shelter, actually, yeah. and uh, the shelter and the transportation as well. So I've worked in both those departments. And then now I'm over in the community programming side. And I've been there for, geez, next week will be three years. I've been in the community programming side of the Friendship Center. Yeah. But yeah. And you were saying like it continues to grow. You were just mentioning before we started <coughs> that um, that a new facility has opened up. Yep. The uh, Child Care Center has uh, has just opened up. Yesterday was the grand opening. And uh, that's up on Elizabeth Avenue. And that's been a huge undertaking. It's been over three years in the, the works to get it finally open, get all of the boxes checked and the I's dotted and T's crossed, you know. So it's a huge accomplishment to get that started. Yeah, and so that yeah. takes your, your staff. You were saying you've gone up to almost 40 staff or something? We like were, the... We've always been around 33 to 38 staff yeah. for, for a few years now, but I'd, I'd say the new child care centers put us over 50 or excuse me, over 40 different staff people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I don't think people realize how, how, how big the organization is and how much work it it uh, it does provide. I always mm-hmm. see the van, <laughs> you know, everywhere. <laughs> we the I vans, yeah. There's always a we van around that town great somewhere. logo, though. I love yeah. that logo we have. Yeah. So um, with that, too, you know, we've got we've got our youth center, and a lot of our youth programs are now moved up to the child care center, which is good. We've got after-school programs. We've got the, you know, the preschool program, daycare program. We've got um, a variety of community service, or excuse me, community programming services community programs we'll just say that yeah and i just saw something fairly recently on social media about one of your um seal skin mitt workshops oh, yes, which yep. is happening again which yep. is a great project and a yep. great program That's teaching traditional up. skills yeah it is and and a lot of what we do is um tradi- teach different traditional skills to get people introduced to or reconnected to or to continue on through culture and um keep that keep it alive you yeah. know yeah. We were talking about bread making before we started. Yeah. Everything always comes back to food <laughs> with me, Amelia, as you well know. Why? <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is a future conversation that I you and I so. are going to have to yeah. have about maybe trying to start a bread making uh, yeah. project. And there's kind. so yeah. many different kinds too. You know, some people yeah. make the bannock, some people make the panunziak. Panunziak, yeah. Panunziak. And uh, then, like I said, my, my version from where I grew up would be called buckskin bread. But it's all the same sort of idea, you yeah. know. And, uh, and even Bannock, there's so many different versions of Bannock as well. You know, there are re- regionalisms and familyisms yeah. and all of that. You know? I, I know a little while ago on Facebook, someone was having a debate about uh, the Inuit fried bread, the Panitsiak. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think it was when the new exhibit was opening up at, uh, at the rooms, mm-hmm. the Inuit art exhibit. And people were saying, oh, you know, depending on what you fry it in. It has a different name. I'm sure you know, it does, So it's yeah. fried in seal fat, which is apparently the best, mm-hmm. then that it has a specific name, you know. And I remember being in Labrador and and, uh, and it being a really kind of important part of, you know, kind of cultural identity. It is. But complicated, you know, because it is one of these things that uh, is also part of a, a history of colonialism because, it, you know, before European contact, we didn't have, you know, the flour. flour. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I want to talk a little bit uh, about the work you've been doing with the Faceless Dolls Project. Mm-hmm. So how did the Faceless Dolls Project start and what, what's it all about? So it started through the Native Women's Association of Canada, NWAC, and it was a national uh, initiative. And it was to, it was looking at the idea that the victims of crime are faceless victims of crime. And so creating um, small felt dolls that w- without faces, but were were decorated up by community members to represent uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women across the country. And 
with that, we worked on our local numbers and compiling local names. And I was volunteering on the project before I actually was in the position I am now as a cultural support worker. And um, I was already making the dolls and all that, which is seems a bit surreal that then I ended up having the job of continuing this work on. So yeah, three years ago, I got the job of, of taking the database and moving forward with it and doing a lot of research and adding names mm-hmm. to it as well. Um, so it started as, like I said, through NWAC, but it's grown to more, and the funding for Faceless Dolls through NWAC has long since ended. But this is an, in- an initiative that's so important to us and a cause that's so important to us. We've continued it on. Um, across the rest of the country, it is uh, specifically Indigenous women and girls. For us, we've decided to, first we decided to expand it to women and children. So we have little boys that we've been tracking as well. And then with the unique history here in the province that before Confederation in 49, or with Confederation in 49, um, Ottawa was informed that there were no Indigenous people here in this province whatsoever, that there'd be nobody applicable under the Indian Act. And so with that, Ottawa moved forward with Confederation saying, okay, there's no one here for the Indian Act. And that means everyone who does have recognition today has had to fight very hard for it. Yeah. Nunatsi of it just celebrated 10 years, I think, last year. And uh, as we know, Halibut just uh, had their agreement signed in 2011. And there's been it, it's been a very complicated history as to who's Indigenous and who's not in this province. And Halibut's still looking at some controversy there. Nunatsi of it is still fighting for official recognition. Um Con River, Miabikeg has been going, you know, has on a national scale still has not had recognition for as long as places other elsewhere across the country. Um, and so with that, not a lot of people have always had it documented that they were Aboriginal or had Aboriginal background, and it's something that's almost never mentioned in court reports or newspaper clippings or um, police reports. Mm-hmm. And so trying to cobble together who is and is not Indigenous within these cases of the missing and murdered is, is rather complicated. We have to rely on a lot of family information. as to So we have to contact everyone and say, ask each family, what's your, your family member Indigenous? And, um, and with that, the, the list keeps growing and growing. But rather than inadvertently leave out someone who did have Aboriginal background, we'd rather include everyone and err on the side of inclusion. And so our list right now that is, sits at 122 names on our list, um, and it's always growing, not only with new cases, but also with, with older cases. Um, with that right now, we figure it's about 27% of the names on the list are Aboriginal, are known to be Aboriginal. And But we're always getting more word that other people on the list did have Aboriginal background. So... The, the statistics are rather fluid in that way, so mm-hmm. we're getting more and more information and, and um, getting better data all the time. And how far back does your data go? Right now, we go back as far as we can. So across the country, when people, people talk about 1,200 or more, it's now well over 1,200, but the, the RCMP listed, it was just shy of 1,200 missing and murdered Indigenous women across the country. That did not include hardly any of the Newfoundland Labrador cases, but for that, they're looking from 1980 until now for their statistics. Uh, whereas we felt, just like in 1949, you know, that shouldn't be the line in the sand for us on so many things. 1980 doesn't make sense as a line in the sand, so we we go back as far as we can. So yeah. there's not one day that all of a sudden life started to matter. So right now, my earliest case that I have on the books is 1758. 
as a, as a murder, mm-hmm. a murder case. Yeah, yeah with a um, murdered Beothic woman. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this list, as you said, is it continues to grow, and 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 though the project has you know, the one phase, of the project has ended. It's still something that continues to move to move forward. Yeah. It does. Yeah. yeah. Each year we have a, a vigil for um, it's called in her name, mm-hmm. and that's a collaboration between ourselves as the Friendship Center, the uh, Sexual Assault Crisis Prevention Center, the Women's Center, and um, Coalition Against Violence Avalon East. So the four organizations have been coming together and have a vigil for missing and murdered women and girls of Newfoundland and Labrador. So that's so right there in the title. We're not saying Indigenous only. We're we're honoring everyone, but there's very heavy Indigenous um, representations. Like I said, 27% of the list is known to be Aboriginal, whereas the population here in the province is only thought to be about 7% Aboriginal. Right, so very high then. Yeah, yeah. so very disproportionate that yeah. way. Um, and then, but with those organizations being heavily uh, female-focused, uh, little boys on my list are not included in that vigil. But not to say only, but there's only nine little boys on the list right now. So yeah, you know, that doesn't decrease the list by much, right? Yeah. Um, with the, with that vigil each year too, we have a lot of Aboriginal content with drumming and singing and smudging and Aboriginal prayers. And uh, I try to make sure the people le- reading the cards at the vigil each year, um, each of the names that's read aloud <coughs> is read off by a different uh, different person, and it's a few details of what happened to each woman or girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, to have a different person reading each of that to to have representation of how many voices have been lost to us and trying to get family members or community members that were connected to that person in some way or another to read the card, if possible. Yeah. Yeah. And so we see a lot of uh, women going up in their, their traditional regalia and things like that to read read another Aboriginal woman's card. Yeah. So what, what do you think this means for the community to have this kind of work happen? It's been very important to a lot of people. And um, people feel that, you know, the memories are being kept alive, that people are not just fading off in the distance, these lives mattered, and that they're worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, each time we we have the list, we have the vigil, or we publish the list in some form of the names, there's always people coming forward saying, well, my auntie from the 50s or my cousin from the 60s isn't on your list. Or, you know, someone from my community back in the 1920s isn't on your list. I was like, oh, so I get more information and start doing uh, more research yeah. and that's how that's how the list keeps growing with old cases right previous yeah. cases but then you know the um, the more recent cases keep happening as well unfortunately yeah, yeah. and this is part of a much larger um, body of work around mm-hmm. murdered and missing indigenous women in Canada it yeah. is the um, actually in August we hosted an event here through no more silence no more violence silence no more and it starts with us. It's all the same organization through, depending on what what part it's working through. But uh, they they had their annual meeting here this this August, and it was the it's their fourth annual meeting. But it's the first time it was held outside of Toronto, which mm. is pretty nice. And uh, they do a lot of database work too. But there's a database work has all been through Ontario, and so Ontario and Newfoundland and Labrador are the main provinces that have been trying to get a really good handle on the numbers. Um, the numbers for the RCMP report that were issued 
were really just a compilation of NWAC, Native Women's Association's database through the Faceless Dolls Project, and then the uh, the the work of Dr. Marianne Pierce through her her research and combining those two. And once once I heard Marianne Pierce's had her list published, I contacted her, and one one phone call between her and I tripled her numbers for Newfoundland and Labrador hmm. for Indigenous confirmed cases. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, even then that twelve hundred through RCMP, they uh, they weren't including a lot of our cases because RCMP at that point was not tracking this information themselves. They were depending on organizations to submit the information, and they'd go through and confirm. Yep, they agreed with those cases, but that not that they were tracking it them, themselves. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of talk, you know, uh, over the last couple of years with with the last you know federal election and the, and the work after about mm-hmm. a need for an inquest or desire for an inquest, um, and and that's a complicated issue, it you is. know. And I know there's not consensus or nope. even within the indigenous community <laughs> about whether or not an inquest is what is needed. But where do you think we are? as a country right now in, in how we are dealing with murdered and missing indigenous women. Um, we're talking about it more, Yeah, but a lot more needs to be done. Uh, there's been a lot of things coming to light that shows a lot of racism, a lot of hatred, a lot of misunderstandings. Um, the inquiry is in progress right now for missing and murdered indigenous women across the country, but we even see so many different things such as the, um, well, we saw the Cindy Gladue verdict last year. We had a uh, rally out on the steps of the Supreme Court here in the snow, <laughs> in the middle of a snowstorm, to um, to really rally and to say that the... So for people who aren't familiar with that... Sure, I was going to yeah. say, yeah, yeah, Cindy Gladue was a case in... Um, she was a woman, an Indigenous woman in Edmonton, who was killed in a hotel room. And the, the man who was accused of her mur- murder walked away scot-free. His, um, he, he said it was an accidental death and that it was I don't know, want to get into too many details because I don't know your audience how uh, mm, sure. you know it's, it's pretty gruesome and it's uh, rather intimate and I don't know any other case where a woman's internal body parts her, her internal sexual organs were held up in court as evidence to be discussed whether or not it was intentional death or not right um, it's a very, very gory case. And that was one that we, we stood up for and said, this isn't right. Um, luckily, by the time the the rallies had started, we started at noon in each different time zone. So we were the first one to go in Canada. And um, by the time we were done with even our Newfoundland and Labrador rally, the uh, the powers that be had already decided there would be a um, an appeal filed, right? So that they would be looking at the case again, but uh, it was only that public outcry that kind of pushed that, I think. Mm-hmm. And then we even see in um, Saskatchewan, Colton Bushy was killed. Um, he was a young man, but at the same time, it was a very, very racialized murder, where um, community was coming forward and uh, defending the the non-Aboriginal perpetrator. You know, and uh, it's just one thing after another. It shows there's a lot of the um, the issues are being brought to light. It's good that it's being talked about, and it's bringing a lot of issues to light, and it's showing the problems larger than a lot of people ever guessed. Yeah. Yeah. I think in non-Indigenous communities, you know, I, I think there's a lot of ignorance mm-hmm. about about the impact that this has on Indigenous communities. And 
and and I think a lot of you know kind of European people of European descent um, really don't recognize how institutionalized racism has become in our country and yes. and and some of the really incredible problems that we have and it, and it extends back so far as well yeah. you know I mean it extends back to to day one and in so many ways that way then that makes Newfoundland ground zero for colonialism um, I have said lately though just because we're ground zero for colonialism doesn't mean we can't also be ground zero for healing mm. you know and and making that reconciliation happen um, the legacy of the residential schools has been significant widespread across the country and I think I think the um, overall notion in non-indigenous communities is that we're talking about the ancient past but we're not right. we're um, residential schools even here for Newfoundland and Labrador, the last one does, didn't close till 1980. And across Canada, the last residential school didn't close till 1996 in Saskatchewan. This is not ancient history right. at all. Um, people I grew up around attended residential schools, you know, yeah. people my age. Um, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> That's, um, uh, well, let's let's talk a little bit about then, uh, you know, that that business of healing and bringing mm-hmm. more attention to things. I know just, just recently there was a purple flag raising and you were mm-hmm. part of that. Yep. And uh, Caribou Legs was, uh, ran through town or ran yep. to town. You want yep. to talk a little bit about some of that stuff that's happening sure. now? Sure. Um, well, to the residential schools and the reconciliation, uh, well, even the idea that Newfoundland and Labrador was left off the, the federal apology in 2008 and only just this September finally had it approved through court that Newfoundland and Labrador residential schools are finally officially acknowledged and yeah. uh, I've had knowledgeable people for the court you know say to me oh we didn't have residential schools here yeah we did and we did, yeah, we <laughs> yeah. did. like I said last one closed 1980 right yeah. and I work with quite a few of the survivors and and with that uh, that's actually half my funding for my position is through Health Canada it's for um, the residential school survivors and with that we work with culture and heritage and uh, reconnecting to what was taken away because in the residential schools you had language taken away um, all all sorts of um, indigenous spirituality and cultural connections and things like that taken away and it was on purpose yeah. it was purposely taken away and so to help reconcile that is to bring it back and uh, and reconnect to those things in a safe and healthy way and uh, you know, like you said Caribou Legs coming through he he was running across Canada to raise awareness about missing and murdered Indigenous women. His own sister was just killed last year. He was a Gwich'in man from Vancouver. Gwich'in is from Northwest Territories, though. It's an Aboriginal group up there. And actually, one of our girls in our office is also Gwich'in, so that was a, a neat connection that he was running here. And then we found out they're actually cousins, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, you know? um, So... It was a beautiful thing, actually, when Caribou Legs came into town, because we had so many different organizations that have very little to do with Aboriginal community coming together, wanting to celebrate his accomplishment and to acknowledge what he'd been doing and why. So I think that's a step towards reconciliation there. Now, I have um, someone I very, very much respect, though, that you can't say reconciliation until you know what you're reconciling. And so that's still part of the understanding of the history of what has happened that needs to... We can't just have feel-good stuff now to say, yay, but mm-hmm. uh, that there has to be the acknowledgement of the the past harms that have happened before we can move towards the, the br- bigger, brighter future together, you know? Yeah. Um, 
another thing you mentioned was the purple ribbon flag raising that we just had at the Confederation Ballet, which was to increase awareness around violence against women, and that's all all women across the board, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and uh, it was lovely. It's my understanding that Newfoundland and Labrador is the very first province to raise such a flag in all of Canada, which is interesting, because Purple Ribbon has been going on for, for quite a few years now, but to say that this is the first province that's actually risen a flag is interesting. And while I was there at the ceremony too, I also learned it was another first for the province that myself doing a smudge ceremony uh, Inuit elder Emma Realist doing an opening prayer and uh, doing the land acknowledgement and then Kim McLean Campbell from Labrador from Riglet coming in and lighting the hulek that us doing that was the very first time there'd been indigenous ceremony like that done in the east block of confederation building ever mm. it's like, it's, uh, it was an honor to be part of that but it's surprising it's taken this long I mean, not not anything against any one person, but it's it's these types of shifts that are needed. So it's a step in the right direction for sure. Yeah, yeah. So what's next for you and for the Native Friendship Center? What are the next? What's next on your plate? Oh my goodness, we do so many things. I know. Um, we we're continuing our work for missing and murdered Indigenous women and supporting families, family members, and communities. Um, we're always at something and kind of whatever we have the idea for we're we're doing at the the friendship center itself i my actual job apart from <laughs> doing all these side things is um my group i run is called the cedar group and so i'm focusing on a lot of empowerment and uh personal education community education we do we do some arts and crafts but we also do a lot of information around missing murdered women we do um information around land protectors and water protectors we do this this friday we've got planned the public legal information association of newfoundland and labrador coming in and teaching us about how the legal system works you know and just to educate ourselves on so many different facets because so often we find um the aboriginal community members that come to us in need of help is just because they don't really understand how the system works yeah how, you know, especially when you're newly in from Labrador and or other rural places to come to the city and you feel lost. You don't know how how to navigate the system. Yeah. Yeah. So if people want more information, either about the Faceless Dolls Project or about, you know, the work that the Native Friendship Center is doing, where can they go? Well, we're located down at 716 Water Street, the far end of Water Street West. And our phone number is 726-5902. And we do have a Facebook page. We have a we have a, a web page as well, but our Facebook page is the most up to date and the most active. We're very active there. I always see stuff coming yeah. through on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. And then even my my own email at work is Amelia A M E L I A at S J N F C. So that stands for Saint John's Native Friendship Center dot com. Yeah. And like you said, there always seems to be something happening. There's always some kind of public event or or workshops or get-togethers. There's always things happening. We've got our big community Christmas party coming up um, December 3rd. And then also as soon as the Christmas holidays are over, we're well, the government holidays are over, we're getting ready to celebrate Naliuk Night again, too. Oh, yes. So when is that happening? Naliuk Night is January 6th. 6th. It's old Christmas Day. I would have to check to see when we're able to actually celebrate at the center Fine. but it's usually on or close to that day great mm-hmm. that's nice it's nice to see those traditions uh, moving forward it is all right well thanks for coming on the show thank you
I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ICH underscore NL. Thanks for listening.